Honorables, the presiding chief judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the state of North Carolina. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the virtual Court of Appeals today. Um, the, uh, we have two cases for argument this morning. Uh, I am uh, Chief Judge Donna Stroud. Uh, to my virtual right, I have Judge Valerie Zachary. To my virtual left, uh, Judge Hunter Murphy. And um, we are ready to proceed with State versus Dixon. I believe Council is all ready to proceed. And so you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Good morning, Your Honors. Jim Grant with the Office of the Appellate Defender on behalf of Mr. Dixon. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. You know, ordinarily in an argument before this court, I would dispense with much discussion of the facts, particularly the trial facts. But given the nature of the issues we've raised in the briefing, I think it's important we begin our discussion today by sort of stepping through what happened at this trial. So if the court will bear with me a little bit here at the beginning. Um, to be frank, this capital trial was an absolute disaster. And anyone who cares about uh, equal justice under law or the public perception of our criminal justice system should be deeply disturbed with the way this trial proceeded. It begins at the very beginning during jury selection when the prosecutor strikes an African-American juror for a reason that simply does not hold up when one looks at the totality of the facts and evidence and relevant circumstances. And that Batson violation is just the first in an increasingly escalating series of events, uh, which are all extremely concerning. And the trial really begins to go off the rails when one of the state's witnesses, Ms. Simuel, is shot and killed days after giving her testimony in the middle of the trial. Now, despite the fact that the prosecutor represents to the court it's, uh, the state's belief that this was likely uh, that Ms. Simuel was likely an accidental target of the shooting. Uh, the local media immediately makes the connection between her testimony in this case and her shooting and writes a story, at which point the prosecutor takes the extremely unusual step of issuing a press release in the middle of a capital trial, which strongly suggests that uh, even though Mr. Dixon has been incarcerated in pretrial detention for years leading up to this trial, that somehow the jurors or court, per court personnel are in danger. And that feeds a climate of fear that begins to surround this case. Um, you know, it doesn't take very long for the first juror to get the news of Ms. Sinwell's death. He comes into court and says that he's scared to serve and is excused. And he won't be the last juror to be excused. At that point, the defense moves for a mistrial on the basis of the extrajudicial comments on the part of the prosecutor, and that motion is denied. The trial court does tell the state not to make any additional public comment about the case for the remainder of the trial, but unfortunately, the damage has already been done. Two days later, in the middle of closing arguments, the only African-American juror seated uh, asked to be excused after he has what can be, concerned, what be, what can be characterized as a strange uh, interaction with some people at his local gym. This forces the court to seat the final alternate juror available to it. And we would argue that the fact that there were no additional alternate jurors at that point colors every decision that this trial court made 
from that point forward. Because if you don't have 12 jurors, you cannot render a verdict and you certainly uh, cannot go to the sentencing phase. After the last alternate is seated, the defense again moves for a mistrial on the same grounds as earlier that the prosecutor's extrajudicial statement has prejudiced Mr. Dixon's ability to receive a fair trial. That motion is again denied. Uh, the jury retires. And then the next day, while deliberations are ongoing, the jury clerk receives a text message from a juror from inside the jury room, which says, quote, hey, I've got a question. If I'm done with this, I don't want to be here anymore because of some personal issues. Do I still get paid for being here? The court recognized that this was fully inappropriate given its numerous admonitions about cell phone use, but the court didn't make inquiry into that juror. He merely reminded the entire jury about the prohibition on cell phone use and the jury continued to deliberate. Well, it turns out that juror didn't really want to be there uh, uh, anymore because a short time later, the jury returns guilty verdicts and everyone breaks for the week to prepare for the sentencing phase. Then it somehow gets even worse. While at a retirement party, one of the court reporters approaches one of Mr. Dixon's trial lawyers and tells her that she heard from the bailiff that one of the jurors knew of Ms. Samuel's death um, and was allowed to deliberate and render a verdict. Defense counsel reacts about as well as you might imagine, which causes the court reporter to email the judge, uh, the presiding judge, uh, to which the presiding judge responds with, it is what it is, and that he saw it as a quote non-issue but that he would address any defense motions uh, suggesting that the trial judge perhaps prejudged the merits of a motion before even getting into the courtroom when court convenes the next week the defense now for a third time does move for a mistrial this time on three grounds first that a juror was permitted to render a verdict with extrinsic knowledge second that there may be potential misconduct on the part of the juror for failing to report that extrinsic knowledge and on the basis of the juror sending the text message uh, during deliberations in, in clear violation of the trial court's unambiguous instructions. The presiding judge examines the bailiff on the record who says that he did in fact tell the judge about the juror's knowledge and report of having that knowledge. The judge says he doesn't remember that conversation, but says that even if he did know his failure to address the juror's outside knowledge was, uh, or allowed counsel to make an inquiry, was simply an oversight and the judge indicates that he's going to deny the mistrial motion again the defense moves in the alternative to reopen voir dire of this juror with extrinsic knowledge so that they can make an inquiry and perhaps even exercise a peremptory challenge on that juror um, which they would have been entitled to do under the statute the judge denies that motion despite having earlier in the trial allowed the state during during jury selection to reopen its voir dire of a juror who had already been seated um, after uh, an incident where uh, the juror and Mr. Dixon apparently exchanged a wave coming into the courtroom one morning. So at this point, all of its mistrial motions and motions for reopening of Wadir denied, the defense feel as though they have no choice but to move for recusal of the trial judge since he is in effect a material witness on the mistrial motion. Um, it's his misconduct or malfeasance or perhaps innocent mistake that the entire motion hinges on. Um, they bring in a different judge who says there's no factual dispute because the judge is willing to say that the bailiff might be, might be correct 
which just simply can't be true under these facts because the credibility of a witness is always an issue. Um, simply being a judge doesn't change that fact. In any event, the new judge denies the motion to recuse and then sends the motion for mistrial and the uh, motion for reopening of Wadir back to the presiding judge, who unsurprisingly denies both motions. Again, these motions are premised on his malfeasance. Uh, finally, the state, likely nervous about this trial proceeding any further, abruptly declares, declares the case non-capital, and the trial judge sentences Mr. Dixon to spend the rest of his life in prison. Now, I didn't even mention the courtroom disturbances or the report of individuals staking out the courthouse or the testimony of a former officer who was a former officer because he wantonly assaulted a black pedestrian in Asheville or a handful of other unseemly things that happened at this trial. The point is that this is not how any case, particularly a case of this magnitude, should be tried. The state's violation of Batson, both judges' erroneous conclusion that recusal was not required, and the denial of the mistrial motions and motions to reopen Voidier all require this court to order a new trial, a new trial which hopefully will not devolve into the circus that this one did. Mr. Grant, I've got a question for you here. Um, so at all, all these times up until the, the state declares it no longer seeking um, capital punishment, you know, this was proceeding as a, as a death case, a potential death case. Yes, what, if any, impact does the case laws, uh, call it philosophy, call it recognition that death is different, have to play, if any, on how we should be reviewing these motions, whether it's the Batson's challenge, whether it's the mistrial, um, even though it didn't proceed to, to have capital punishment. What, what flavor or what lens should we be looking at? And is there any change with this having been a death penalty case at the time that impacts our, our abuse of discretion review, our, our Batson review, anything like that um, at this stage? Well, I think strictly speaking, Your Honor, the fact that it is a death case, I mean, there are many ways in which death is different from a, from a purely black letter law perspective. I'm not sure the fact that this was a capitally tried case necessarily changes the black letter law applicable here. I think there are a couple reasons why it being capital is germane. Uh, the first is that um, obviously we're trying a man for his life and even in the absence of a capital sentencing proceeding, he's been sentenced to life without parole. I mean, these are the cases. If there are any cases where the law needs to be applied rigorously, it is these cases. These are the most important cases to, to everyone, to the state, to the, to the victims, uh, to the families of the victims, to the defendant himself. Um, you know, that's, that's the big point. And the other point on the Batson, which I, I was going to transition to talking about anyway, is that one of the benefits of this Batson claim, at least from our perspective, um, is that because this was capital a capital trial, Voidir was extensive. You have, I think Voidir took about three weeks, if I'm not mistaken. It was a long time that they were selecting this jury. And each and every juror got asked numerous questions, particularly numerous questions about their views on the death penalty, which is one of the reasons why in the briefing we argue that the state's, I guess, complaint about 
comparative juror analysis in the first instance on appeal is misplaced. Because if the idea is that we're springing something on the state, that's just not present in this case. All of these jurors were examined rigorously about their views on the death penalty, every single one of them. So we have a full body of developed statements from these jurors from which to do comparative juror analysis with. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing. Um, turning to the Batson claim, this court is familiar with the framework, which is a three-step process. At step one, the court determines whether the defendants made a prima facie case of discrimination. At step two, uh, the court hears uh, purportedly race-neutral reasons from the state. And then at step three, evaluates whether the defendants met his burden of showing purposeful discrimination. Um, you know, in this case, step one and two are moot on appeal under the case law because the judge did in fact find a prima facie case and did hear race neutral, a uh, race neutral justification from the state. So this is purely a step three Batson case. So we're only concerned with step three and the standard of review in this case is clear error. And I want to talk a little bit about something the state leans very heavily on in its briefing which is that um, you know, these, these determinations are given some deference on appeal and it's a clear error standard. Well, what does that mean and what does it require for this court? I guess I wanna answer that by telling you first what it doesn't require. Uh, this court doesn't have to gain the ability of omniscience to see into the heart and mind of this prosecutor. Um, that is of course impossible. Uh, but fortunately that's not the standard. Unfortunately, that's how the standard has more or less been applied in North Carolina for the entire history of Batson, which is one of the reasons why our state, to our great shame, has one of the sorrier Batson records of any state in this country. Uh, as a frame of reference, this is not the record, but my understanding is Alabama has granted new trials on Batson issues in at least a dozen cases. North Carolina has done it in exactly one, and that was this year when our state Supreme Court decided State versus Clegg. And one of the biggest reasons I think for that failure on our part uh, as judicial actors is the misapplication of this clear error standard. The state basically argues that it is a functional barrier to relief, and it is not because the US Supreme Court routinely reverses cases, Batson cases. Other jurisdictions routinely reverse Batson cases. Excuse me, I, um, have, I have a question about Batson. Uh, does the trial court have to conduct a comparative juror analysis um, even if it's not raised by the defendant? I would say yes, Your Honor, and the, my support for that is, one, how the U.S. Supreme Court handles these cases. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court routinely does comparative juror analysis for the first time on appeal, which would suggest that there's no there is an obligation on the part of the trial court once a Batson, proper Batson objection is, is lodged to do, uh, to do his own comparative juror analysis. Um, in this case, the, the trial court did not do that, but again, that's not a bar to this court's consideration of it on appeal. Uh, as our Supreme Court and Clegg, or I believe it was Hobbs actually noted, um, you know, the, the trial judges to consider the arguments of the parties and the relevant totality of facts and circumstances, which seems to suggest to me that those are different Thanks. Um, well, let me ask real quick uh, a couple questions stemming from Hobbs on this, and they kind of go towards this preservation. 
even if, if I were to agree with you that there was some general request to kind of look at the jurors and to do some type of juror comparison, doesn't Hobbs at, at 358 require the defendant to do more? I, I'm looking at this language um, where, where it's talking that the trial court didn't do what it needed to do under Miller L at 358. Rather than also examining the comparisons in the white and black potential jurors' answers that Mr. Hobbs sought to bring to the court's attention, with the what he sought to bring to the court's attention, isn't that talking about the specific comparisons? Let's look at this person. Let's look at this person. We we don't have that specificity here, and that's what what concerns me a great deal in terms of, of preservation, which leads to a, another question I want to give you an opportunity to answer that goes along with this. And, and what I'll be asking of the state is, is the juror comparison only at the time of the Batson resolution and only based on what's come before, or should the trial court be looking back to everything for jury comparison and doing this at the end of Wadir? Um, and how could that logistically happen? Um, and I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, let, let me answer that last question first, if I can, Judge Murphy. Um, our courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, has done comparative juror analysis for jurors after the, the juror in question. So the U.S. Supreme Court has done that. Um, I don't, I don't have a. A, a case site handy for that at the moment, but it is my understanding that the Supreme Court does do that, which I, I get is a little bit weird because how are we evaluating the propriety of the strike? Um, the judge's evaluation of the propriety of the strike by including information that had not yet happened yet at the time the judge uh, made that call. So I understand that that's a little weird, but I guess what it suggests is that ultimately this court on appeal is concerned with whether the prosecutor's explanations hold water. In terms of the preservation angle about having to raise specific arguments in the first instance, again, that is not how our courts have done it. And that kind of makes sense because it would require the defense attorney in real time to marshal every single piece of evidence and every single juror comparison um, in the moment and raise that before the trial court in order to be able to argue it subsequently. Now, if you and that, may, that, that may be more of a problem, and maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding the logistics of, of the capital trial procedure here. Defendant had two attorneys, correct? Correct. And had they moved for or received live transcriptions? Uh, not, I don't believe so, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I can't represent to the court one way or another. I just, I don't know. But I, it is my understanding. I do not believe that they had live transcripts. But if it's a um, if it's a burden for the defendant to be able to to, to make a comparative juror analysis argument, um, you know how can we ex how can we ask the trial court judges to do that? Well, the trial judge has the ability to suspend the trial for as much time as he needs to to do his comparative juror analysis. I mean, the the defense attorney is sort of at the mercy of the court. The court can take all afternoon to go look at back at live transcripts or evaluate uh, or have a, 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 a lengthy hearing at which he requires the defense to provide specific comparative juror analyses. Um, 
but again, that's it's it's not required, and I'm, I'm not just making that up. If you look at the Hobbes decision, the dissent in Hobbes was essentially raising the same point. You know, hey, you didn't one of these jurors you didn't make any arguments about, and now the court's arguing about it. You know, and making determinations for the first time on appeal, and our Supreme Court didn't seem to think that that was a problem. So, in light of the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court will examine um, comparative juror analysis for the first time on appeal, and in light of the fact that our state Supreme Court evidently does it, I don't think there's any impediment to this court doing the same in, in this case. And it, at, Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Well, okay. Um, so you're saying that basically, so obviously this is a very long jury selection with, what was it? Well over 100, I can't remember. Jurors that were questioned goes over and over a very long period of time. Um, and the judge is having to rule on each juror, of course, as they come. Um, so to do this comparative, how does how does a trial judge do this comparison? Um, you know, when they're when they're questioning juror number two hundred, do they have to go back and think about jurors one through one ninety nine? Um, I mean, just as a practical matter. Um, I mean, I understand we on appeal, we're, mm -hmm. we're looking back with hindsight and with a transcript and with a record, and we can look at that theoretically, but how does a, I mean, and, and obviously a trial judge can make some comparisons and whatever as they go, but I'm just trying to figure out as a practical matter, how is a trial judge supposed to deal with that? They go back and say, okay, well, I had allowed juror number 10 uh that i you know initially you know someone objected or whatever i you know but now i'm going to go back and change that and we're going to kick out juror number 10 now that i've looked at juror number 187. no your honor i don't, I don't think anyone's suggesting that the trial court would remove jurors already seated now and i know it sounds it sounds somewhat burdensome for the trial court but remember we're only evaluating these jurors along one metric in this case, um, because the state only provided one race neutral justification for the strike, which is uh, this jurors, uh, this African American jurors supposed reservations about the death penalty. So when we're evaluating the similarity or dissimilarity of jurors, we're only evaluating them through that one lens of what did these jurors say about the death penalty. Now, there may have been 100 jurors prior to this juror um, who were questioned, but recall that we're only worried about jurors that the state has passed on. So it, the universe of, of jurors is, is fairly small um, that, the, that the trial court is actually thinking about. And I, I think there's a distinction, at least I would think there would be a distinction between, you know, going through a transcript and having to read hundreds and thousands of pages of transcript to glean the necessary information and the amount of work that would take essentially what I and Ms. Lawrence and this court will have to do um, and have done versus a trial judge who's proceeding over a uh, proceeding uh, uh, presiding over jury selection who actually is there in the moment and can listen to what these jurors are saying about the death penalty and their views on the death penalty. So it I don't think it's a it's a tremendous universe to pull from. Um, and, and I'll concede that I would have preferred if um, trial counsel had made specific comparative juror analysis arguments 
Um, and that way we wouldn't be talking about this from a preservation standpoint. But I think the case law is pretty clear from the US Supreme Court and our court that this court um, is empowered to do that for the first time on appeal. And especially where like here, where it was the juror statements regarding how they felt about the death penalty, you know, you're comparing uh, rather detailed, uh, you know, a long statement, you know, that this juror, this is their description of how they felt about it, um, you know, with another juror and how they, all the stuff that they said, I mean, which is kind of a lot of information. I mean, there's a lot of nuance in, in any particular juror statement. Um, I mean, probably no one is going to come right out of the gate saying, I'm just totally happy about the, the death penalty. I mean, you know, maybe there are a few, uh, but, or, you know, there's some that might be very immediately, like, absolutely. And, but those are going to be kicked off quickly, uh, for calls, um, if they're too emphatic either way. So all of our jurors that we're really seriously considering are going to be people who are, you know, looking at things in a more, more careful manner, I guess you'd say. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just wondering about, you know, how, how a judge as a practical matter is supposed to uh, compare all of that detail over a matter of you know, weeks, even of, of selection. Well, I, I think that's what the law expects of them. I mean, the law is demanding on on everybody and, and trial judges are no are no different. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, we're not trying to figure out if the prosecutor is some irredeemable racist, right? We we can't do that. And to be honest, that's almost never going to be the case. These are, um, you know, people are complicated. Unconscious bias is certainly a thing. Um, and what we're doing in a Batson analysis, what the trial court has to do and what this court has to do, is simply look at the explanation that the prosecutor gave, the subjective explanation that this juror had reservations about the death penalty. And then it's up to the trial court and this court to determine whether that justification survives any scrutiny. And in this case, it does not. It doesn't matter if this court can come up with potential justifications for why the DA might have struck this juror. The, the, as the U.S. Supreme Court put it, the, the, the prosecutor just has to rise and fall on the strength of his explanations when viewed against the record. Well, how do you respond to the state's contention that the defendant made no argument or during sur surrebuttal um, or made no attempt to show that, this, that the state's explanation for excusing juror, juror B? I, what are, I don't remember the... You know sure, B, I think, yeah, that, that would, sure that's, that works. Mm -hmm. um, um, that those, that the, the prosecutor's explanations were, were uh, protectual. Why? I mean, the, 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 the trial counsel in this case did raise a Batson objection. Uh, now, it, its objection was couched more in terms of, um, you know, this prosecutor elicited questions of this particular juror that, was trying to sort of steer him in a in a one direction or another, which is slightly different than the comparative juror analysis, but really it's not. At the end of the day, what we're talking about is what did this juror say about their views on the death penalty and how does that compare to other jurors that have gone before? Um, and, and we've argued the facts and circumstances in the in the briefing. I see that I'm I'm cutting into my rebuttal time. Well, 
I'll give you some extra time. We asked you a lot of questions, uh, so we'll accommodate for that. And if we do the same thing to Ms. Lawrence, then we'll we'll uh, accommodate that as well. But um, yeah, so if you know if if uh, Judge Zachary has any further question or or Judge Murphy, uh, y'all do that. And one thing I want you to think about before to you can address it during your rebuttal time. But how are we supposed to um, perform statistical or historical analysis when while like in Buncombe County in 2014, you had a regime change with the district attorney's office. What what impact, if any, does a regime change have on understanding statistical or historical analysis? If you'll think about that and, and you can apply during your rebuttal time. Sure. Okay. And and you'll have your full rebuttal time. So thank um, you, Ron. Yes. And maybe some extra if you need some extra to answer that question. Um, okay. And now by the state. May it please the court. My name is Sherry Lawrence. I'm a special deputy attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this case. The trial court properly denied the defendant's Batson objection in this case. In light of the re relevant circumstances presented to the trial court in this case, this court cannot be left with the definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. Uh, the court is well aware of the standard of review um, of clear error, and that this court should give the trial court's Batson determination great deference because the trial court's decision is based on evaluations of credibility. Uh, no great deference does not mean a prohibition to relief. However, um, the trial court is and was in the best position to observe the prosecutor's demeanor, the juror's demeanor, um, and to determine the credibility of both parties and observe other reactions or emotions, hesitations, candor, or honesty of the lawyers, as well as the different members that came into the jury box and within the jury pool. Moving to step three, Batson sets out a three-step inquiry. Uh, the defendant has pointed out step three is the issue before this court. All case law is clear in stating that the defendant has the burden of establishing purposeful discrimination. Once the state presents their facially valid race neutral reason, the defendant then can show that uh, or try to prove that that is not a true facially valid race neutral reason. And then the burden shifts to them to show and prove purposeful discrimination. The trial court must assess whether the prosecutor's profit reasons are the actual reasons or whether the profit reasons are contextual and the prosecutor instead exercise preemptorily strikes on the basis of race. And that came from our Supreme Court's case in Stacey Clegg. In addition, in regards to the relevant circumstances, in assessing the reasons for the challenge, the trial court considers all the relevant circumstances and reasons and reasons submitted by the parties. And that is what our Supreme Court recently pointed out in State v. Clegg at paragraph 63. Put more simply, our Supreme Court in Clegg stated, the trial court carefully weighs all the reasoning from both sides as to indicate that it has to be presented to the trial court for consideration to ultimately decide whether it was more likely than not that the challenge was improperly motivated. And that quote comes from paragraph 63 of State v. Clegg from our Supreme Court as well. The defendant in the Hobbs case, Hobbs is distinguishable, distinguishable from this case. The defendant in Hobbs presented comparative juror analysis, also presented statistical evidence. The opinion is clear at 
page page 359 to 360, as well as 358, that the defendant presented that evidence, albeit at step one, um, because our court clarified and our court stated in response to the defense, the trial transcript reveals that, in fact, during the argument regarding McNeil, when asked by the trial court whether there was any other showing, counsel for Mr. Hobbs responded, I believe we would stand on everything that we're, we earlier stated, meaning going back to what was presented to the trial court at step one in establishing that prima facie case. I am not aware of any U.S. Supreme Court case or North Carolina Supreme Court case or this court's case that puts that burden under step two on the trial court to conduct comparative juror analysis. In this case, unlike Hobbs, the defendant did not present any comparative juror analysis to trial court, uh, did not present any statistical or historical data that he now presents to this court did not present that information to the trial court. Um, instead, it seems as if it cuts against the precise reason that we have the trial courts there in the first place to evaluate these claims based upon what is brought before them and what is pointed out to them to review them and, and hold the defendant to the fact that he has to carry that burden under step three of Batson. Um, this, Considering the statistical historical data that the defendant points to in this case is from 1990-2010 data, um, all of that was available. It was definitely available during the trial court's uh, consideration. It could have been made a subject of the argument that was presented by the defendant, but it was not. Um, however, we're here at this appellate level and the defendant is seeking to have a second bite at the apple. Um, however, it's an ambush from the trial court. It's ridding the trial court of the opportunity to consider that evidence and to rule upon that evidence. Ensure the trial court in this capital trial heard all of the jurors' answers, was able to hear what was done. However, it's not the trial, trial court's burden to establish and make objections for the defendant or to establish his burden under step three of Batson. And there's no case law that I can recall or know of that indicates that. Um, the closest thing, I think the defendant relies heavily on Hobbs and his interpretation of Hobbs, which I think is clear under Hobbs that that evidence was indeed presented, unlike here. Also looking at the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court case of Flowers versus Mississippi, um, our court in that case at 2244 um, reiterated the defendant's burden in, in talking about bats and, of course, and um, what they could still do. Most importantly for present purposes after Batson, the trial judge may still consider historical evidence of the state's discriminatory preemptory strikes from past trials in the jurisdiction, just as Swain versus Alabama had allowed. After Batson, the defendant may still cast Swain's wide net to gather relevant evidence. Again, our U.S. Supreme Court puts that burden on the defendant to collect that evidence, to present it to the trial court, at step three to prove purposeful discrimination. If it was the trial court's duty to collect all this information and to do this comparative juror analysis, it would take away the meaning under step three for Batson. Uh, the defendant would not have that burden of proving purposeful discrimination. Um, so we would contend that it's the defendant's burden and it's the defendant's um, 
responsibility to bring forth that evidence. And is is it the state's position state's position that we are bound to only be able to review for jury comparison those things that the trial court had in front of it at the time of its ruling? So any of the jurors that would come later would not be part of our consideration of step three? Henry, I think the short answer to that question is if it was not raised before the trial court, that is correct. So I, I, how can somebody raise something during a Batson um, challenge that hasn't happened yet? I think he has a duty to uh, to to readdress the issue and to raise an additional Batson objection and ask the trial and ask to be heard outside the presence of the jury and present that information to the trial court. Um, because, of course, our case law talks about Batson and establishing systematic pa a pattern of discrimination. And, of course, if that something occurred to that nature, then he could easily bring it to the trial court's attention to have it addressed outside the presence of the jury once that behavior has occurred. Um, what are the remedies available to the trial court at that stage? Is it to strike the whole jury panel and start over from scratch if that happens later in trial? Um, is that procedurally how th that would work to consider those later if, say, there's a motion that's renewed um, regarding, let's say, SB's challenge, if that was made at the end of all the jury selection and all the alternate selections? Um, what would be the remedy if the trial court said, yeah, now looking at these later jurors and the questions that were asked and who the state did not object to and, and how this was and um, I agree with the defendant now that the defendant's met its burden. Um, what, what's the remedy at that point now after this juror has already been excused and has gone from the courthouse or at least not in this jury grouping anymore? Uh, if I understand your honor's question correctly, I guess the question as to whether we would recall the jury juror that was struck by the state based upon the future behavior or future questions of the state. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Is, is that um, the remedy or is the remedy to start over? Is there some other remedy that I'm not thinking of? I, I guess just off of just just off of first glance, I think it, the proper remedy would probably be to just to, to pull in another juror for questioning. As to as to that particular seat, however, I'm not really sure exactly how that will work procedurally. However, I'm even not even sure if that is really an option under those circum under the circumstances. However, in this particular case, that's not what we had before us or before the trial court. But surely, if the trial court had that issue before them, then they could allow the the defense to question additional jurors. And then to to proceed. But, in that but getting additional jurors doesn't solve the Batson problem that this person was unlawfully and unconstitutionally eliminated from the jury pool. Well, then I think they will reopen the Batson discussion and reopen the the burden that the defendant has to to show, and the defendant would make arguments again, continuing on with his burden of proving purposeful discrimination, and then he would have to conduct that comparative juror analysis to the jurors that were called thereafter to say. Well, jurors, uh, 
prospective jurors five or six were also called in to point out those similarities to the juror that was struck previously by the state and then to also carry to continue to carry that burden. So it would not alleviate him of the burden under step three. Right. I'm saying if the trial court decided that defendant had met his burden at step three at a later renewed challenge, which now encompass more comparative jurors. Is there a solution to keep going forward with the trial or do we just start over? I don't think necessarily starting over would be would, would be the solution. I think if the trial court has those circumstances before them, then based upon all of the totality of circumstances before that trial court to make the 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 best constitutional decision under those facts. And I guess it's hard to speculate as to what those actual facts and circumstances would be without actually knowing them and based upon being um, in the line of fire in the position of the trial court and knowing your jury pool and your jury panel. Um, because again, it, it would still have to be, I think some, some type of pattern or, or other actions that are shown to prove that that's in violation. And to show that these are similarly situated jurors, and here we go again, and possibly even raise an additional bats and objection uh, to someone else that was struck. I'm guessing from the defense perspective, if that issue arose, that would be the case, and the trial court would go from there addressing that issue. Okay, thank you, ma'am. And also, I think going back to um, your question, Judge Murphy, um, to defense counsel regarding uh, whether or not this, the fact that this is a capitally tried case, uh, whether or not that would change the landscape of things. And other than the fact that the punishment would be death when the state was seeking the death penalty, that's the only thing that changed this, changes the state case. The black letter law applies equally to these cases as well as other cases. Yes, these are very important cases because of the punishment. However, that would be the distinguishable factor for capitally tried cases. So the black letter law and the standards of review um, for all other cases would still properly apply. And moving on to Talking about the state's, the, the defendant's burden, again, is the defendant's burden to establish under step three purposeful discrimination. Uh, we would contend because the defendant did not present the comparative drug analysis evidence, as well as the historical data evidence that he now seeks to present um, to this court that the trial court is being ambushed and these claims have not been properly raised in the trial court and this court should not consider them because there's no case law we're aware of that has done so and allowed a court to conduct the comparative juror analysis when that evidence was not before the trial court. Um, regardless, jurors, jurors uh, SB or juror B um, that was preemptorily struck by the state stated explicitly stated when questioned, do you, do you have any moral, philosophical, or religious beliefs or opinions against the death penalty? His initial explicit answer was, um, yes, I have reservations about the death penalty. And he went into a long narrative of why, stating why he felt the way that he felt um, that is disproportionate that statistics show African-Americans receive it more than others and that it has weighed on him quite a bit, that he wished he wasn't here. 
he wishes reason he's there never occurred and that he wished that his life would not be interrupted for this proceeding. He continued talking about how it weighed heavily on him, thinking he might be a part of the process. And he gave the short answer. Uh, he gave the short answer of neither one of those penalties do I object to when referring to life imprisonment and the death penalty. And he stated initially, he well, lastly, he qualified his ability to vote for the death penalty with if that's what the law requires which the prosecutor, of course, explained the law doesn't require either one. And this court is well aware of that as well, but he continued to express these reservations. And I think it was that last question where he finally said, okay, I can impose both. And that's in stark comparison to the other jurors, juror R and juror K. Um, when asked, those jurors stated, no, sir asked that same question. No, sir. However, upon further questioning by the state about the circumstances, well, what if the evidence didn't support it? Could you impose it? And juror, juror R and juror K then went into talking about their, their beliefs. And juror, juror R stated, under the evidence that was produced, if you thought that a death sentence, well, that was the question, he stated yes, initially. And then he went on and said that his decision would depend on the circumstances of the case. It would depend on the evidence. Juror K stated the same thing. It would depend on if he was guilty or not. All qualifications that were in stark comparison to Juror B. Juror B clearly stated his generalized reservations about imposing the death penalty, whereas these other jurors stated, yes, I had a problem with it. They're uncomfortable with it. They didn't like it. However, under the circumstances, depending on the circumstances, yes, we could impose that. And in what addition- Ms. Lawrence, what part of the trial court's order do you see, and because and, I, I guess I'm looking here at transcript 2312 to 2313, what part of, of this order suggests the trial court engaged in any of that depth? of consideration of the death of that response. Um, and and that, that's that's one thing I, I'm having a little bit of trouble here is a lot of these remand orders that have happened um, since Hobbs um, have included, you know, this need for detailed jury comparison um, for the trial court to, to really engage and really show us how it weighed this. I, I don't see anything in, in this this order as declared here, and maybe it, it's somewhere else where the trial court indicates that it it weighed all of these um, different aspects and made specific findings of fact that really show this engagement that the state is now using of these differences. And I think, Your Honor, that goes to the state's initial argument, and the state is making this argument that's presented to the to, that's presented to the state by the defendant on appeal, which goes back to our initial argument that because the trial court was not privy to this information, this court should not review based upon that information. However, assuming arguendo that this court decides that, hey, you can consider it, then the state does 
make those arguments in response to the defendant's arguments, which I think that's exactly the point that your honor is making. That's the problem that we have in this case. The trial court simply stated on 2313, the court will find based upon the evidence presented that there was not, there has not been a sufficient showing that the juror's race was a significant or motivating factor in striking the juror, rather Miss Juror B, and denied the Batson challenge, which goes to the overarching point that we've been discussing this morning, that it is the defendant's burden to prove purposeful discrimination. And the defendant has did not carry that burden. So the state in its brief address out an abundance of caution, the defendant's arguments. The state's not conceding, nor does the state contend that this evidence should be before this court is improperly raised. And it's improperly raised because the trial court, unlike Hobbs, did not have the opportunity to have this information before him. So it goes exactly to the point that your honor is making. It wouldn't have been included in that order because the trial court determined there was not a sufficient showing. And it's not the trial court's burden. And there's no case law that says it's the trial court's burden to raise issues and raise this issue for the defendant um, uh, before the trial court as to Batson. A Batson objection under step three. There's no case law that establishes that. Um, so I think that definitely answers your question. The state addressed those arguments out of an abundance of caution. Uh, so we will contend that this court determined that those issues, comparative juror analysis was not done in the trial court. The historical data was not presented to the trial court, unlike in Hobbs. And that evidence is not properly before this court because it's an ambush on the trial court and it did not give the trial court that opportunity to raise to to rule on those issues so we would ask you to follow current case law of this state current case law of the united states supreme court and to affirm the trial court's order as to the batson objection and ask to the two motions for mistrial um, as well as the unchallenged motion to recuse judge horn uh, that was done by Judge Bridges. And if there are no further questions, the state will rest on its brief and ask you to affirm all orders in this case. Yeah, I was just going to, I'm um, sorry, I couldn't unmute myself there. My mouse was not cooperating with me. Um, so did you want to say anything else about the, uh, you know, I think uh, this trial was, uh, let's just say, unusual uh, with all of the many things that happened during it. Uh, did you want to address any of that any further at all? I mean, it, yes, it's, sure. it's pretty crazy. Yes, Your Honor. Um, and I think there are a number of things that occurred during the trial. However, I think what's important for each part of this case and each issue raised is to apply the proper black letter law that's well established in this state and to apply the proper standard of review that's also well established in this state. For the motions for the mistrial, going to issue two, um, keep it in mind that again, it's it has to be some type of irreparable and substantial prejudice to the defendant's case. That is the burden that has to be established for a trial court to grant the defendant's motion for a mistrial. As to that second one, 
that second issue regarding a mistrial, the defendant did not carry his burden. The defendant in this appeal failed to challenge Judge Bridges' recusal motion. Kind of going back before the recusal, the defendant made a motion for a mistrial, uh, not complaining about Judge Horn's involvement, made a motion before Judge Horn, excuse, yes, Judge Horn, made a motion for a mistrial that was denied. Once the defendant received that adverse decision, he immediately, hastily, and abruptly then stated, well, you shouldn't be involved. However, he kind of talks out the other side of his mouth during the recusal motion after Judge Judge Horn decides to say, hey, let me call judicial standards. Let me ensure that I'm being fair and impartial. Let me ensure that I'm creating that appearance in addition to that. He calls judicial standards. He, Judge Bridges comes over as a result. He holds the recusal hearing. Uh, in fact, during that hearing, and even prior to that, the defendant's attorney is constantly saying, well, he handled this so well. He gave such great cautionary instructions. I've never seen anybody do that before. He tried his you know, best to insulate the jury from and to protect them and make sure they're not looking at these uh, media art articles or anything. He praised Judge Horn. In fact, stated that Judge Horn had not engaged in any type of misconduct. So I think in this case, the defendant again has not carried his burden. The recusal motion was a response to the initial first denial of his motion for a mistrial. Even with that, Judge Horn didn't argue, he didn't fuss. Judge Bridges heard the recusal. The defendant did not carry his burden under that, under the circumstances, because he didn't present any evidence of a personal bias or an interest that Judge Horn had in the litigation. He praised the judge, said he didn't engage in any type of misconduct here. So Judge Bridges did an extensive order denying the motion for the recusal and referred to referred the additional motion for a mistrial to Judge Horn. Defendant is still trying to get his second bite of the apple as he's doing today before Judge Bridges. He's tried to get Judge Bridges, a second judge, to hear the motion for a mistrial. Defendant has not challenged Judge Bridges' order on appeal. We would say the defendant has acquiesced to that decision on appeal um, because he's not challenged, specifically challenged that order. Uh, once he then proceeds to the, the second motion for a mistrial as to this issue that he raises again, Judge Horn says, okay, and he hears it again. Uh, he, he lets defendant makes all the arguments that he likes. Again, he fails to carry that burden and he's not carried that burden because the record does not indicate, the record does not show that juror, juror R was at all impacted by his knowledge at all. Um, so we have the recusal. Judge Horn is the one who decided, well, can't, Judge Bridges is the one who decided, can Judge Horn move forward? Defendant did not challenge that on appeal, so we would say that ruling is a good ruling. And the motion for mistrial, the second one, the first and the second, should be evaluated under, under the standard rules. The defendant has to establish some type of irreparable and substantial prejudice to his case. And in light of the evidence in this case, there are not there's not such prejudice involved. And we didn't get into the facts. Defendant stated he wasn't going to go into the facts. However, as to issues two and three, the facts are very important very important. While there's no direct evidence of the defendants, like an eyewitness, 
that saw the crime know there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. There's evidence of prior abuse on the victim. Mia Logan testified that the defendant choked her three weeks prior to the murder. There were multiple text messages that were presented on May the 3rd. They started, the defendant and the victim started having a conversation about her being pregnant, him wanting her to have an abortion, and she didn't want to. He wanted to rid himself of the baby. Um, and May 9th, those conversations continued. On May 9th, defendant also asked for a throwaway. We received testimony as to what a throwaway is. What, what is a throwaway? On May the 10th, the defendant told his friend D'Angelo Durant, well, she's pregnant. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. If she does not get rid of the baby, I'm going to kill her. And that's the one, that's on May 10th. And that's at a service station. So May 11th, the date of the murder, and that's after he got the throw, well, after he asked Larry Wallace for a throwaway gun, he then started to message Candace again on May 11th, multiple text messages, again, about the same thing. May 11th was her three-year-old son's birthday. They went to Chuck E. Cheese together. They separated. She then went to O'Charlie's with her son. He starts messaging her. Then at 721, we know she's at O'Charlie's with her son. He's still talking about this abortion. You got to get this abortion. She says, no, 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 no. It gets pretty intense where she finally says, F you and all you stand for. This child would know nothing about your sorry A. Then they go on and on about it. They keep talking about it. She's saying no, 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 no. At some point, he changes course and he says, okay. Well, she says, I'm announcing it. I'm getting ready to announce. He then says, okay, before you do, just let me tell you something that I've never told anyone before. And whatever you decide, I'm going to stick with it from just don't judge me. Call me when you're done eating. And that's at 7.55. At 8.29, there's a message to the defendant from the victim saying outside. Defendant responds, coming. Vanessa Peterson testified, yes, she called me around that time, 8.30ish, 8.40ish, and abruptly hung up, told me I needed to stay with you. No one heard from her that after that point. Defendant was the last person seen with her, the last person known to be with her and her son. We have cell, cell phone location data, put defendant in the location of the homicide, as well as in the vehicle, this location where the vehicle was found. There's numerous residents around Jones Park that heard the gunshots, heard a man's voice, heard a woman's voice. Uh, defendant and Ernest Brewer, Ernest Brewster, admitted picking the defendant up off of Marymount Avenue, which is where close proximity to where the car was found around that time. So there's cell location and cell phone record and text message data showing their communications where he got her to pick him up, him to pick her up, pick him up after he ditched a car. Um, and he, Ernest admitted, yeah, I picked him up. And he then, defendant then tries to message Candace, messages Candace at 11.15, and 11.34, knowing she's dead, to do what? Establish an alibi. Absolutely. So all of this evidence flows. Um, in addition to that, there's a jailhouse informant. And of course, a lot of people say, well, well, jailhouse informants, they're not reliable. They're not credible. However, in addition to all of that evidence, Leslie King testified that he was helping defendant with his um, defense, and the defendant admitted that he shot, shot, 
the woman twice and the child once in the head. Leslie King knew specific details about this case that um, were very specific as to how the blood looked, as to um, where they were shot. So again, that's additional evidence could corroborate all of the other evidence. So in light of that evidence, under as to issues two and three, there, there's no prejudicial error. There's not a reasonable possibility that the jury would have reached a different verdict. And as to any constitutional error, it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt in light of that error. Yes, there were a lot of things going on during this trial. However, the record evidence does not indicate that any of the jurors were sitting on the case determining the guilt of this defendant uh, were unable to serve impartially and render an impartial verdict. There, no, there's no indication in that record. It was a lot going on in this trial. Okay. I agree. So, um, however, focus on the standards. Um, and wrap the up. Yeah. Oh, so, sorry. yeah, because yeah. If there are no further questions, the state would just ask you to affirm all of the trial court's orders in this case, the Batson orders, and the two mistrial orders. All right. Thank you. And now for rebuttal, uh, we'll say six minutes. Like I said, we ate some of your time with questions. So, if you need that, you've got it. Thank you very much, Judge. Um, the state is running the playbook that it ran for 30 years, which resulted in Batson being a dead letter in this state. I want to direct the court's attention specifically to Miller L. <clears throat> we cited on page five of the reply brief and at numerous times in the principal brief. 545 U.S. 241 Note 2. The Supreme Court specifically held that, quote, comparisons of black and non-black veneer panelists, end quote, were properly before it despite having been raised, not having been raised in the lower court. The court explained that there is a, quote, difference between the evidence that must be presented and theories about that evidence. In essence, the comparative juror analysis. When the record contains sufficient evidence and a Batson claim is fairly presented, the court, quote, when the claim is, quote, fairly presented, end quote, the court may consider the argument. The United, um, so the United States Supreme Court has, has said that there's a difference between raising a Batson objection and raising, marshalling every piece in the evidence in the record below, um, and uh, that there's a distinction between those two things, and what gets you in the door at the appellate court is raising the Batson objection. Uh, the Sixth Circuit has, again, we cite it in the reply brief, the Sixth Circuit has explicitly adopted that rule. And again, in Hobbs, there were two CJAs at issue and only one was was raised below in the trial court. And yet the Supreme, our Supreme Court addressed both CJAs in its opinion over the dissent, over the dissent. So uh, it's pretty clear, I think, that there is, contrary to the state's suggestion, plenty of law to suggest the state may do this for the first time. It is not an ambush situation. Um, with Miller L, isn't that a this looking beyond what was there at the time of the actual Batson challenge? The the federal habeas procedure kind of plastered on top of this that we can't really necessarily take into account just on its own to say it is this whole universe of everything that came before or after. Isn't that just unique to the habeas? Well, I'll, I'll concede that the, the, these cases, when they get to the U.S. Supreme Court, are, are almost always in the, in the context of federal habeas. So, yeah, there is sort of a, 
procedure within a procedure going on there. But the Sixth Circuit, which again, not binding on this court by any means, but instructed, the Sixth Circuit has explicitly adopted the rule that CJA for the first time on appeal is appropriate, provided that the state's concern about a quote unquote ambush is not implicated. And again, our position would be in this case, you have plenty of discussion about these jurors' views and the death penalty. Nobody is, is being ambushed here. Um, we are simply evaluating at this point whether or not the subjective explanation of the prosecutor holds weight. Um, I want to move quickly here and just say, um, you know, I, I really, uh, I got to confess that I don't totally understand the state's position on us supposedly not having challenged Judge Bridges' order. I think it's it's fairly clear that we have challenged the the underlying, you know, you don't take an appeal from orders, you take an appeal from a judgment. Um, below, the recusal motion was made and decided, and counsel yielded gracefully to that decision as is their obligation. And now we're arguing about it in the appellate court. I don't see any preservation problem on that front. Um, Judge Murphy, you asked about what difference does it make if there's like a regime change in Buncombe County. I think for the purposes of of the law, the state is the state is the state. Otherwise, you know, every time there's a district attorney change, um, everything that can't, you know, it'd be like saying if there's a new attorney general elected that, you know, they they don't, you know, they're not bound by representations made by the previous attorney general. I mean, but it's for this. We're, I guess maybe it's not whether it matters at all. It's what weight would be given, given that this is the trial court's attempt to figure out the subjective intent of the prosecutor. So that's not okay. okay I'm sorry. So, so to that extent, it comes into play still, but wouldn't it have a much reduced weight to be given to it if you've got a regime change? I don't think so, Your Honor. It's this is not the idea that North Carolina has a problem with racially discriminatory jury selection. I don't think at this point is a particularly controversial one. In fact, our attorney general uh, in his role as uh, as a member of the task force on racial equity in the criminal justice system has heralded this MSU study as evidence that we need to do better. So, you know, I, I think with respect, I, I will concede Ms. La uh, Ms. Lawrence's point with respect to the statistics. The statistics were not, to be frank, put in front of this judge. And I, and I understand that that may lessen its force or the ability of the court to consider it on appeal. But really the, the global statistics uh, in the MSU study are really just the table setting for the environment that this objection is raised in. This is a state that has a problem, as many states do, with racially discriminatory jury selection. African-American jurors are excused at more than twice the rate of their white counterparts. And that has been true in capital trials and presumably in non-capital trials for quite a while. So one district attorney in one jurisdiction um, really does not change that underlying fact and, and whatever import the court wants to provide to it. And furthermore, we're not, if I can be, if I can sort of counter something you said, Judge Murphy, we're not trying to find out the subjective intent of the prosecutor. The prosecutor has told us what his subjective intent is, which is that he struck this juror for reservations about the death penalty. Um, that well, is what the trial court is trying to make a, a credibility determination of if he believes the prosecutor's race neutral reason. Well, the prosecutor, the, the trial court is trying to evaluate whether that explanation um, 
carries carries any water given what it's heard and the evidence that's before it. I mean, if if you want to characterize that as making a subjective determination about the intent of the prosecutor, I think that's fine as long as we we keep in mind that we're evaluating the strength or weakness of the explanation that's given. Um, you know, there is a benefit, and our and our state supreme court and Clegg has pointed this out in its opinion. There is a benefit to this court. Um, this court enjoys a degree of removal and distance from the trial court that is useful in these cases. No judge wants to look a prosecutor in the eye who they see every day and say, I think you're being racially discriminatory. Um, this appellate court doesn't necessarily have those same sort of soft considerations. And so there is a value to that. And I would strongly encourage the court. I won't, I'm running out of time, so I won't get in depth. Yeah, you're, you're actually negative, but you got a question. So if you just finish. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I thought the two it minutes were on the back end. When it starts going backwards. Yeah. Yeah, I apologize for that. It, it, I would just ask the court to look at the comparative juror analysis we've done in the briefing very closely and look at what these jurors said. There is really no distinction between jurors B and jurors R and K. And there is much distinction between juror uh, B and juror S that the state points out. And I would ask the court to look at that very closely. Unless there are additional questions, I will conclude and simply ask this court uh, to reverse the trial court and order a new trial. And in so doing, reaffirm not only Mr. Dixon's rights, but the integrity of our system. All right. Thank you all very much for your arguments. And that will conclude this session. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned. Thank you.